This morning, I'll ask you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16 as we continue and we finish this 16th chapter of Revelation. Last week, we started going through this chapter and it's outlining the last set of judgments that will be poured out during this tribulation period. They're known collectively as the bowl judgments. And this is the most intense series of plagues that the world has ever and will ever see. And in the pouring of these seven bowls of the wrath of God, the wrath of God is finished or brought to completion. During the time that these bowls are being poured out, God has withdrawn himself into the temple in heaven, and he is brokenhearted over the state of humanity and brokenhearted over the destruction that must be meted out on an unbelieving world. We saw those first five bowls poured out last week. And we talked about the likely ramifications of those plagues on the global climate, all of the figurative shakings that would occur. This week we'll see a literal shaking that will occur. And the horror that will come to the earth during this time period is almost unimaginable. This week we'll see these last two bowls of God's wrath poured out. The sixth bowl comes in what I'll call, for lack of a better term, two parts. The first part, it causes the Euphrates to be dried up, and it says that's to prepare the way of the kings of the east. And John also writes, this is the second part, that he saw three demonic spirits going into the world to convince the kings of the world to gather together for battle against God Almighty. And that is their preparation for this battle of Armageddon. The seventh bowl that we'll see today brings a mighty earthquake such as the world has never seen before. And I have a suspicion that calling it an earthquake actually sugarcoats in our mind what is actually going to be happening. And we'll see why that's the case. So let's read through these last few verses of chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which will go which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God almighty behold i am coming as a thief blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame and they gathered them together to the place called in hebrew armageddon Verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, it is done. This is the last reference to the temple in heaven. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, 
such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. That's where we're going this morning. So back up in chapter 16, verse 12. The Euphrates is being dried up. This is the sixth plague of the sixth bowl. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. I am not aware of a more important river in history than the Euphrates River. And although there may be one, I'm certainly not aware of it. The Euphrates River was one of the four listed as flowing from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.14. It was the cradle and will be the grave of man's civilization. All of civilization was born out of the Euphrates, the first civilization founded on the banks. It was the eastern boundary to the land grant that God promised Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. There are many covenants recorded in the Bible, but there's only four covenants which are unconditional. This land grant is one of them, and it's commonly known as the land covenant. And it's being challenged. By who? Islam. Islam challenges the Israelites' authority to be in the land. They don't believe that land, that land specifically, is divinely granted to Israel. The Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. This is a little lesser known, but as as powerful as Rome was, and they were the dominant superpower of the world, they could never conquer the Parthian Empire to the east of the Euphrates. That was the dividing line between east and west. This drying up of the great river Euphrates has also been prophesied in the Old Testament. You can see Zechariah 10, 11. And Isaiah 11, 15, and 16 reads this. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Isaiah is comparing, divinely inspired, no doubt, the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites to this crossing of the Euphrates by the Israelites. They will, the walking across is on dry ground. And I don't believe that the Euphrates will be dammed up, but it will be dried up. And there is a difference. We have to remember the significance of the Euphrates and its location 
to see why this is actually a plague. We can see this river being dried up as kind of a not on par with the rest of these plagues because we had the, the sun being turned up. We had the waters of the world, both fresh and salt waters being turned to blood. And then God dries up a river. How does that constitute a plague? Especially the greatest that the world has seen. We have to remember the location and the significance of this river. Babylon, that great city, has been built along the banks of the Euphrates. It was at the beginning of civilization when men congregated around the Euphrates after the flood, they built the city of Babylon. And we know the story of the Tower of Babel. God had to split that up so that nothing too bad would happen. Babylon will again be built. And this is well recorded in scripture. It will be rebuilt on its current foundation, on its ancient foundation. It will be built along the banks of the Euphrates. And this river provides this grand city with its fresh water. The drought of the first half of the tribulation would probably have already lowered water levels in this river before these bowl judgments even begin. And when the third bowl changed the fresh water into blood, that would have affected the Euphrates. And it would have made water treatment very expensive, but necessary before it could be used. Then the sun's increasing power would lower the water level even further. So we're not going from a river that's flowing in full force to completely dried up. It's already been damaged a little bit. This water level has lowered. The water quality has absolutely lowered. But now God is just finishing it out. The modern nation of Iraq, which is where Babylon is located, has, with British and American assistance, developed over the course of the last several decades an extensive water supply, flood control, and hydropower network on the Euphrates. And all of these systems are put in place to provide power, electricity, um, and harness the power of the water to create that electricity. But something else that the water does is cool off the electrical plants. It's kind of a, a diffuser, a, a heat sink, to take that heat away from where the electricity is being generated. When the water is dried up, they will no longer be able to use those hydropower electric plants to produce their electricity. And that will be a deadly blow. The sudden drying up of this supply of water would constitute almost a lethal blow to this city who's already reeling in darkness, in painful darkness. We saw last week that darkness was poured out on the throne of the beast. That will be Babylon. Thus, it seems almost certain that the new Babylon will depend almost entirely 
on the Euphrates River as its freshwater supply. And this drying up would affect far more than just water reserves for drinking. Um, we have the power effectively being knocked out. The only light in the city would be lamps and candles. And Revelation 18.23 says, The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. Speaking of Babylon. So in Revelation 18, it assumes that lamps were seen in Babylon. Now, we wouldn't see lamps necessarily today unless something drastic has happened. And any stored water would probably need to be conserved for the most vital of functions like drinking. And again, remember that these plagues have a compounding effect. This is such a tight time frame between all these things coming on the earth that these people are still reeling from the source of the first plague. Now, the proud headquarters of the world, the great city of Babylon, the capital of the beast, sinks into this dense darkness and it thirsts for water. Even the most basic of human functions are not without difficulty. The physical phenomena that this sixth angel uses to dry up the water in the Euphrates isn't specifically mentioned, but there are a few possibilities that are worth our noting. This area is tectonically unstable. It's had a lot of uh, tectonic activity throughout history. And with the tribulation period being punctuated with earthquakes and volcanic activity, it's possible that a fissure opens up in the ground to drain away and swallow up all the water from this Euphrates River. And one more possibility is that intensive local winds and the already intensified evaporation could just work together to dry it up. That's certainly possible. But the third possibility is the most intriguing to me. The Tigris and the Euphrates both have their source in the Ararat mountain range. And we've got a map. I'll show you where that is. And I brought my laser pointer this morning. <laughs> so this is, I hope you can see that on the screen. That's Turkey over there. We've got um, Israel is in this area, Egypt right there, so that gives you an idea of where we are. The Ararat mountain range is in this area up north, and the Euphrates is this river right here. The Tigris is just north right there. They get their source of water from the Ararat range, and Mount Ararat is the tallest in the mountain range, and it boasts a 17,000-foot summit. It's a very tall mountain, and it's capped with a permanent ice cap that melts only partially during the summer months. So the melting snow from the highlands and the melting ice cap of Mount Ararat um, provide most of the water for the Tigris and Euphrates river systems. 
coming down from that high elevation, the melting snow and ice. These two mighty rivers have their source in the same region where Noah and the animals disembarked from the ark. And they were rebirthed, if you will, into this new world. But these reserves of water in the form of snow and ice will surely melt during the drought, and if not during the drought of the tribulation, definitely during that intense solar episode where the heat of the sun is turned up. And that melting of those ice caps, the snow in the highlands, is going to deplete that water reserve stored in snow and ice. The melting and the drying up of those snow caps of Ararat would lead to the drying up of the river systems below it. And that is another possibility. It's there on Mount Ararat that Noah's Ark landed. At around 15,000 feet of elevation. And actually many explorers, both ancient and modern, have reportedly seen the bow of the Ark sticking out of the mountain. Now, Many modern scientific expeditions have tried to locate and measure the ark without success. They have not been able to do it scientifically. We just have accounts of explorers. Now, this begs the question, if God is saving this discovery for a special time, a time when the world needs a reminder of his sovereign judgment. And it may very well be that during the sixth bowl of the tribulation, God melts those ice caps, dries up the river of Euphrates, and puts on display this very sobering symbol of his judgment. It's interesting to consider. Peter tells us that the first time God judged the world was with water, and we have that flood account. But the second time will be with fire, never again with water. Back in verse 1, it says, And his water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. There are at least nine references in Revelation to the kings of the earth. But this is the only reference to the kings from the east. There's another strange reference in Daniel 11.44 to tidings out of the east and the north that are said to trouble the king. And the king, based on the context in Daniel 11, is the beast of Revelation. He is the Antichrist. But the context of this passage in Daniel places its events earlier in the tribulation than the bull judgments. And specifically, it's when the Antichrist is still making his conquest of the nations. He's still in the process of taking over. So I don't think that Daniel 11.44 is speaking of the same event as Revelation 16. 
But this event in Revelation 16 is no doubt a precursor of the great battle of Armageddon. And we'll look more at that this morning. It's a staging of the troops just north of Israel for what they intend to be their assault on the Holy Land. Um, I think it's kind of a staging ground, this, this valley of Jezreel, which we'll look at. And the kings of the east will be able to muster an incredibly powerful force, multitudes upon multitudes, millions and millions of people. Between China, India, Japan, and others, a massive fighting force will be assembled from the east. And that's not to mention all of the other multitudes from across the entire world that will gather together for this battle against God Almighty. There have been armies in the past that have been pinned up against the Euphrates River. In the 1991 Gulf War, Saddam Hussein's forces were bottled up against the Euphrates. But there have also been armies that have crossed the Euphrates when it was full. Even ancient armies have been recorded as crossing the Euphrates. And modern armies certainly would have no trouble crossing on the bridges that have been built. Um, If not by the bridges, by boat or plane. So if the drying of the Euphrates isn't necessary for the crossing of these eastern armies, what is its purpose? It's curious. Rudyard Kipling famously said, Oh, east is east, and west is west, and never the twain shall meet, till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. Just a quote from Kipling. But perhaps this drying of the Euphrates stands as a message that the dividing line of east and west all the way back from ancient times, is no more. The earth has united. For the first time in practically the earth's existence, everyone has come together and is against God. The dividing line of east and west is no more. It's dried up. Easy access. The people are united against God. You know, I can imagine people hating God and even blaspheming his name. I don't condone it, but I can imagine it. But I can't even imagine the kind of deception and derangement that would have to overcome a person to make them literally want to take up arms and fight God. And that's what we're seeing at the Battle of Armageddon. And they know who they're fighting. It's not like they don't know. They know who they're making war against. So how does the drying of the Euphrates then prepare the way of the kings of the east? It's impossible to be dogmatic here. We don't know for sure. But here's a possibility. The only other New Testament mention of the Euphrates is found in Revelation 9, 14. We've already looked at this. 
And this is when those hordes of demon horsemen were unleashed out of the Euphrates to wreak havoc on the earth. And no doubt, the toll of these demonic entities was extensive in the eastern countries. You know, their booming populations, tight metropolitan centers, the death toll would have been insane. And the memory of this horde of entities that swarmed out of the river is probably fresh on their minds still. And it's probably effective at turning back their advance across the river because they don't want to encounter these same beings that they already know came out of this river. With the drying up of the river, though, their minds are put at ease since they can see the riverbed and there is nothing there. There are no demonic entities or any life at all in this river. This may just give them the confidence that they need to make their advance to the battlefield. And again, it's impossible to say for sure, but I think that could be likely. Verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These unclean spirits are explicitly stated to be demonic spirits. And they proceed out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, the mouth of the Antichrist, and the mouth of the false prophet. They are functioning to deceive the nations into making war with Almighty God. That is their purpose. They are also granted the power to perform signs, miracles, in order to draw more people to the battlefield. Who gave them that power? Well, Satan, okay. But even further than that, God. God grants them the ability to work miracles. And it's hard for us to kind of conceptualize that. But we know that they are serving his purpose. It says in verse 16, and they, speaking of the unclean spirits, gathered them together to the place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. The they there should be God. And God gathered them together in place called Armageddon. These spirits only think that they're doing their own thing. But they're not. They are completely under the sovereignty of God's control. And they are working his purposes out. They are spirits of demons performing signs, that is miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. I want you to consider the state of the world at that time and the attitude of the people at this point in history. The cities of the world are in shambles. 
including the great city of Babylon, and people are barely surviving. It may seem that there's nothing left to lose. And these people are so angry at the God who they know has brought these plagues onto them that they refuse to turn to him, repent of their wicked ways. They are so hardened, in fact, that they decide the best course of action in this circumstance is to take up arms and fight against God. So they begin gathering themselves together in the valley of Jezreel. And this is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Can we pull up that map from last week? I think that's got it on there. This valley of Jezreel is also called the Plain of Esdralon. And it's the basin at the base of Mount Megiddo. Let's see here. We have Israel right here. About 60 miles north of Israel is this valley of Jezreel, the Plain of Esdralon. And that is where these troops from across the world will be gathered for this great battle of Armageddon. This is the same valley where a lot of historical battles have taken place. Jabin and his 900 chariots were overwhelmed here. You can find that in Judges 4. Gideon's 300 defeated the Midianites, Amalekites, and the children of the east here. You can find that in Judges 7. Samson triumphed over the Philistines here, and you can find that around Judges 15. Barak and Deborah defeated Sisera here. You can find that in Judges 15. Saul was slain by the Philistines here. You can find that in 1 Samuel 31. Ahaziah was slain by arrows of Jehu, 2 Kings 9. Pharaoh Necho slew King Josiah here in 609 BC. The Saracens, the Christian Crusaders, Egyptians, Persians, Druzes, Turks, Arabs, and many other peoples had battles at this location. And Napoleon, on his march through this area, said that this was the perfect battlefield. And being biblically literate, I think that he knew exactly what he was saying. You know, we see the term Armageddon used in popular culture all the time. And it's generally used just to talk about like the end times or the last few days of existence. And that is not entirely biblically accurate. Armageddon is a very specific event in the biblical timeline. It will be a literal battle that takes place between God and the blasphemers of God. And it's not just a physical battle, which it will be, but also a spiritual battle. The forces of good and the forces of evil are going at it. And spoiler alert, there's not a lot of contest there. We know exactly what's going to happen. And I hope that you're getting a sense of the spiritual nature of this battle as we see these demon spirits going out into the world and literally 
recruiting an army that's going to fight against God. Then in the middle of these few verses, 12 through 16, talking about this sixth bowl, we see a little insertion in red letters. We know these are the words of Christ. In verse 15, he says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Can you guess how many blessings are ascribed in Revelation? We call them Beatitudes. How many Beatitudes are there in Revelation? Just throw a number out there. Seven. Yes, of course. There are seven Beatitudes in Revelation, of which this is one. Um, The first one coming at the very beginning. Blessed are those who read, who hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. So we have seven Beatitudes. In the middle of talking about Armageddon, there's this parenthetical insertion from Jesus. Behold, I am coming as a thief. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, and 5, Paul is writing to the believers in Thessalonica about the day of the Lord, saying, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And he goes on with this contrast between day and night. But the important part of this little verse, these two verses, is that we as believers are not in darkness so that this day should overtake us as a thief. The coming of Christ is not going to overtake us as a thief because we know and we watch. Jesus doesn't come as a thief to those who love his appearing, but to those who mock his appearing. To them, he will come as a thief, unexpected. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. In the Old English vernacular, this word garments means habits or manner of living. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his manner of living, keeps his habits, keeps a close eye on how he's living, on how he's representing Jesus. And that should be the end of our studying prophecy. We watch our habits. We watch how we live. Because we know that Jesus is coming soon. We don't want to get caught with our pants down and walk naked and see our shame. We don't want that. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. No one wants to be caught with their pants down. But that's exactly what it will be like for those who are not expecting Christ's return. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And 
Uh, that would be Har Megiddo in the Hebrew. And that just means the mountain of Megiddo or the hill of Megiddo. Verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Why the air? It seems these judgments are becoming more and more specific to who they're actually trying to get at. That is Satan. The enemy is Satan. His minions are the beast, the false prophet, the demons. But Satan is the enemy. The bowls began to be poured out on the world. Then on the throne of the beast. Then on the river that supplies his capital with water. And now on the air. But how is the air more specific than the throne of the beast? Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. This is Satan's domain. He rules the air. By directing this angel to pour out the bowl into the air, God seems to be insinuating that this is Satan's portion. This is his due reward, these plagues, and specifically this one. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. I mentioned briefly when we were reading through, this is the last instance of the temple of heaven being mentioned in Revelation. Is that significant? I think so. The New Jerusalem does not have a temple. It says God and Jesus are its temple. There's no need for a place any longer. The last mention of the temple of heaven. And a loud voice came out of this temple of heaven from the throne. Now, from that, we can identify whose voice this is. This is the voice of God Almighty. Remember, he has shut himself up in the temple until the end of the bowls, until the bowls of his wrath are poured out on the earth. That was from Revelation 15, 8. The voice of God issues forth from the temple, saying, it is done. It has finally come to completion. Where else have we heard something similar in Scripture? When Jesus was hanging on the cross. That's found in John 19.30. Jesus said, it is finished. To telestai. But a different Greek word is ascribed to God here. He says, it has come to pass. It is done. 
It's not the same word that Jesus uses on the cross. It is finished from the mouth of Jesus, marked a new beginning for all of those who would trust in him. It is done from the mouth of the Father, marks the end of all those who refuse to trust in his Son. To Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. That's what Jesus said. That is a new beginning for anyone who trusts in Christ. When you accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life, that is the beginning of eternity. From that point forward, you'd never have to be separated from God. You will always live with God. It is done. That's what God said when the finality of his wrath has been poured out on the earth. It marks the end for those who don't trust in Jesus, who blaspheme his name. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. These noises, thunderings, and lightnings punctuate the end of each series of judgments in Revelation. We saw it punctuating the end of the seal judgments in Revelation 8.5. They punctuated the end of the trumpet judgments in Revelation 11.19. Now, they punctuate the end of the bowl judgments, the end of judgment. Noises, thunderings, and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. This is an earthquake, if you want to call it that, like has never been seen before. And calling it an earthquake seems to be a gross understatement because of the extent of the destruction that's described. This is nothing like the earthquakes that we're familiar with. We see in verse 20 that it absolutely levels the topographic features of the globe. It flattens out the mountains. The islands were not found. You know, islands are just underground or underwater mountains sticking up out of the surface. Flattens everything. The shaking that ensues is unimaginable to us. And all of this shaking is prophesied. Isaiah 24, verses 19 and 20, prophesy of this event. It says, The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. I believe this is speaking of this insanely powerful earthquake. But it doesn't stop there. The next few verses in Isaiah 24 seem to talk about all the people gathered together at Armageddon. 
verse 21 in Isaiah 24 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. This is punishment for the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. That outlines the events that we're about to see take place in Revelation. Punishment of the kings of the earth, all gathered together in one place. After several days of blaspheming the name of God, all together, they will be shut up in the prison, and for many days they will be punished. Then, after the battle of Armageddon, um, really during, Jesus comes on a white horse, comes riding in with his church. And then, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, he will reign for a thousand years. That is the millennium age. Verse 19 says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. There is a lot of debate over whether this reference to the great city is talking about Jerusalem or Babylon. You know, I, I don't know. But from just a surface level reading of the passage, it seems like it's referring to Babylon because the very next sentence seems to effortlessly bring Babylon into the conversation. It's almost as if the topic were already introduced. We see now the great city was divided up into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So Babylon is introduced almost like abruptly, unless that prior phrase was referring to Babylon. And the cities of the nations fell. Now, I do know what that means. The cities of the nations fell. Everything is leveled. You know, if the mountains come down, surely the skyscrapers are coming down with them. You know, it won't be that hard. Every city on the earth is taken out by this great shaking. And that's literally what the Greek means. It's megas seismos, a great shaking. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. What has to happen to make wine? The grapes have to be crushed. Give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. You have to trample the grapes. And this is the scene that was introduced at the end of Revelation 14, when God tramples out the grapes of his wrath. I skipped pretty quick through that end of Revelation 14 when we were going through it. And we talked about it a little bit. And I said it related to Armageddon. Well, this is where it's relating to. 
And this is when we're going to slow down and look at it a little bit. Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20 read, So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,000 600 furlongs. The Christ blasphemers of the world have gathered in one central location, in the Valley of Jezreel. And it has now come time for God to trample the grapes of his wrath. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, outside of Jerusalem, in Megiddo that valley of Jezreel, about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. If you keep up with the horse races, you know what a furlong is. If you don't, um, 1,600 furlongs is about the distance of 176 miles. It's a long way for blood to be running up to a horse's bridle. This happens to be the distance between the Valley of Jezreel and Basra, which is modern-day Petra. Petra, in, in the Bible, it is actually referenced, and its name is Basra. That is the place where God will be safeguarding his remnant during the tribulation. 1,600 furlongs the distance between the Valley of Jezreel, where the Battle of Armageddon will take place, to Basra, Petra. And I'm going to let you make that what you will. Um, Consider it. Verse 21 tells us how God tramples the the grapes of his wrath. He does so with hail. Not ordinary hail. We'll look at it. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. This hail is not the same as the icy hail that we've experienced. Okay, The Greek word for hail is kalaza, and it's just used to describe something that's falling out of the sky. It doesn't have to be ice. It can be used of anything falling out of the sky. And then it says... Each hailstone or each stone that is lithinos about the weight of a talent. This word lithinos is always used to describe stones of rock. Each stone about the weight of a talent. So the hailstones that fall are boulders that are falling from the sky. God rains down these boulders on those who've gathered to blaspheme and make war with him. It's a gruesome picture, but it's exactly what man deserves. Nothing less. What was the penalty for blasphemy in the Old Testament? Stoning. Leviticus 24, 15, and 16. A Greek talent was about 96 pounds, 
a Hebrew talent was about 114 pounds. And if you get hit by one of these, it won't matter which one it is. These guys are going to be turned into pancakes. You can imagine these 100 or so pound hailstones, rocks, falling out of the sky in great number. And we can see how this scene would fit the picture of grapes being trodden underfoot in this giant basin that is the Valley of Jezreel. And as their buddies are being flattened to pancakes, they are still unrelenting. It says, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. In the midst of everything, boils on their body, hadn't had anything to drink in probably over a day, Um, this unrelenting heat, gathering together to make war with God. All of a sudden, the sky opens up, giant boulders start raining down on them, and they're still cursing God. And indeed, this plague is exceedingly great. God is long-suffering, but the day of the Lord will come. Psalm 2.9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's pretty graphic. But thankfully, for us living today, there is a way of grace that's already been made available to us. You can be on the winning side of this battle. And on the winning side of the entire war. You know, if you knew, without a shadow of a doubt, who was going to win the Super Bowl this coming year, you'd root for them, right? I would. I'd hop on that bandwagon. We tend to root for the winning team. And we know who the winning team is going to be in this battle of Armageddon. And in history, we know who wins. It's the one on the white horse and not the one in Genesis 6, uh, Revelation 6. It's the one on the white horse in Revelation 19. King of kings, Lord of lords. It is God Almighty. You have an opportunity to enlist in that team. And we don't know how much longer that opportunity is going to last. But it's in front of us this morning. The grace of God has been extended to us. And we are so fortunate even to live in the time period that we do, let alone in America, where we're free to read the Bible, to teach it, to gather together. We're so fortunate. And it's by no accident that you're here. If you weren't going to accept Christ, do you think God would have even placed you here with this opportunity? I don't know. Accept Christ. We won't have to wonder anymore. Everything is coming down right now to the last Gentile who will be brought into the sheepfold. The counter in heaven is clicking away. We're getting there. We don't know how many will come in, but we know there is a specified number. God has set the fullness of the Gentiles. 
And it is at that point that things will move on. I think it's about time to wrap this whole thing up. Trust in Jesus. There's nothing more to it, nothing less to it. Not by works that anyone should boast. For God so loved the world. And yes, he, he has wrath too. But he so loved the world and he so wanted the world to escape that wrath that he gave his one and only son. That, there's causation implied there. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, shall never be separated from him. And we are told as Christians, we are not appointed to wrath, but rather we're appointed to salvation. That is our appointment. We're not appointed to be here blaspheming God, screaming his name, and turning into pancakes. That is not our portion. We are appointed to salvation And we can take advantage of that this morning. If you have any questions, please come see me after the service. And we'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer.